0: In the beginning, there was darkness, and God created light. We saw His face illuminated, and we knew Him. But then, as sin entered our hearts, we turned from Him and plunged ourselves back into darkness. Our view of God grew dimmer and dimmer as we fled further away. We lost sight of His true character. The God we once saw shining bright in majesty became hidden from us by the lies we surrounded ourselves with. But even in the darkness, our God is in control. Even through our questioning, our God is ruler over creation and unchanging amidst our confusion. He is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, infinite in understanding. And we are blessed when we seek His face. Our love is deeper when we know the God of eternal love. Our worship is sweeter when we recognize the holiness of the author of life itself. When the lies and the mystery fall away, We know the truth about God.
1: Hey Cornwall Church, it is so good to have you with us joining in together today online to be able to worship together, to be able to look in God's word together. And I'm really glad that you've joined us. Um, It's good to be here. I mentioned in a video that we posted earlier this week that I would be actually preaching from my home. Uh, Grateful that Governor Inslee's office made a provision for faith communities to be able to do live stream um, in their own buildings, which is really great because the equipment is much better. So I'm here with a, skeletal crew. We're all staying many feet apart, and so we're safe. Uh, But thanks for joining us today as we continue in uh, this series, The Truth About God. Interesting thing, this is our third week doing the live stream, and it's kind of almost like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, because the first week, I preached the shortest sermon that I have preached in recent history. Last weekend, I preached the longest sermon that I've preached in recent history, so maybe today is the Goldilocks effect. Maybe today it'll be just right. It was 37 minutes two weeks ago, 57 minutes last weekend. We'll see where we land uh, this week. But thanks for joining us uh, as we continue on in the truth about God. I also want to mention again, as Pastor Brian said, There are a lot of resources online, uh, different things, prayer prompts, encouraging scriptures, places you can go, uh, links to help that's available. So I want you to take advantage of that throughout the week and continue to fill your mind with God's word to bring about hope and peace and joy and confidence in these times that are so uncertain. I want to again start this week before we get into the sermon with a word from God's uh, scripture that gives us this kind of hope. And this one comes from one of the minor prophets that we don't jump into very often. It's out of Habakkuk. And in Habakkuk's day, they were dealing with difficulty, calamity, trouble, like we are. And they found themselves in a season where provisions were very, very scarce. And there was a lot of uncertainty about what the future would hold kind of like where we are. And what's interesting is the first thing Habakkuk does is that he prays, and it's not just a now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayer. I mean, it's a full-on pouring out his heart to God, complaining, God, don't you care, don't you see? And what he discovers is that God is still in control. And as he writes this little book, his short little book, he writes some verses that 600 years later, the Apostle Paul would write, in a couple of his letters and here we are 2,000 years beyond that seeing how they apply to ourselves. Now what's interesting is at the end of this whole book he gets to this conclusion and he doesn't deny reality. In Habakkuk chapter 3 we read these words he says though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food though there are no sheep and no cattle in the stalls. What he's saying is, the shelves are empty. Old Mother Hubbard's got nothing over us, and we go to the store, there's nothing there. The supply chain has been cut off. It's realistic. He's not denying that at all. But then he says something that Paul would repeat 600 years later. He says this, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Years later, Paul would write to the church in Philippi and he would say, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I tell you, rejoice. And he would say that there's this rejoicing, not in our circumstances, but rejoicing in the Lord. And look how Habakkuk ends this when he says, the sovereign Lord, that's important here, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. This idea that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that he's the way maker, the miracle worker, the light in the darkness, even when I can't see it, he's working, even when I can't feel it, he's working. He's convinced that God is sovereign, and because of that, because of the strength of the Lord, he is able to rise above his circumstances and live at a level where he has peace, where he has confidence, where he has hope, and where he has joy, and that is the truth that we can live in today that the sovereign Lord is our strength. In the middle of this little book, he writes another phrase that Paul would later write to the church in Rome when he says, and the righteous will live by faith. It's not being frantic. It's not being afraid. It's not panicking. And it's not being foolish. It's not doing stupid things, but having faith, faith in God. And I hope that you're living in the truth of that faithful God and the confidence and the hope that we have in him. All right, so that's just for us. Continue to fill your mind with the truth of God's word. Let's continue on in this series, the truth about God. Last week, if you were with us uh, for that marathon sermon, we looked at an aspect of the Godhead that is not an attribute. It's the essence of God. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. This whole idea of the Trinity of God is not an aspect, it's the essence of who he is. And likewise today, we're gonna look at another thing that's not so much an adjective, it's not an aspect, it's not an attribute of God, it's the essence of who he is. And we can take it out of that same song that that I quoted last week, where it starts off saying, holy, 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 holy. Today we're gonna look at the holiness of God, that God is holy. Interesting, throughout the pages of scripture, the term holy is used more with God than any other term. You see it over and over again. And the very first time that it's mentioned in relationship with God, it's actually in a song that it was sung, and it was a joyful song. It was a song of celebration. It was a song written by Moses and his sister Miriam. And Moses had been at the burning bush. Moses had seen the 10 plagues, Moses had led the people out of of slavery. He had led them across the Red Sea. And then on the other side, when they are rescued, when they're set free, the people begin to sing the song. And it's a joy-filled song of what God has done. And in Exodus chapter 15, part of that song says this, Who among the gods, little g here, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Now, they had just come out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt where there were all kinds of gods. And he says, none of them, as proven by the plagues, as proven by your power, none of them is like our Lord. He is majestic in holiness. Now, as I said, holiness is not just an adjective that's used to describe God. It's not just an attribute of God. Kind of like this. We can say that God is loving, but it goes beyond that. God is not just loving God is love. That's the essence of who he is. Likewise, with holiness, God is holy, but he isn't just holy. God is holiness. And so this title we see throughout scripture is talking about God and he has spoken and thus says the Holy One. Interesting little side note on that. In our English translations, it says the Holy One. In the Hebrew, it simply just says the Holy Thus says the holy, that God is holy. And Moses starts off referring to God as his majestic in his holiness, and you see it throughout the scriptures. In Exodus, in the worship, in Leviticus, in the holy sacrifices, in Deuteronomy, in the holy law, and restating of this holy law, in the historical books of Joshua, and Judges, and Samuel, and Kings, and Chronicles, you see the holiness of God. It's written throughout the poetic writings. And then, when you get to the prophets, in the prophets is when you begin to see holiness in its truest sense. And that's where I want us to land today. That's what I want us to talk about today. Last week, if you were with us, I threw out a a, a little homework assignment to read Isaiah chapter 6. That's where we're going to spend a lot of our time today, in Isaiah chapter 6. If you want to turn there, uh, you can. Uh, Also, it's on the tab there with the scripture um, online and on our, our app. But Isaiah, um, many believed uh, and would say that he was the greatest prophet uh, of the Old Testament. Um, and in his uh, prophecy, in his book, such incredible words. I mean, words that we talk about every year. Words about the birth of Jesus. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, Is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Emmanuel, God with us. That was the words of Isaiah. When in Isaiah 53, it talks about the death of Christ, his sacrifice for us, that, that he, was, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Words of Isaiah, beautiful words. Or as we saw last week in Isaiah 61, the words that would predict the very ministry of Jesus. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and release of captives and recovery of sight to the blinds. All of that. But it wasn't just these good news passages about the coming of the Messiah Jesus. Prophets spoke on God's behalf to the people to get them back in line. And there's actually some very, very strong words that God speaks through the prophet Isaiah. In the opening pages of the, of the uh, book, in chapters 1 through 5, there's these words of judgment on Israel because they've become so self-centered. They've become rebellious. They've become idolatrous, adulterous, immoral. They, they, they've, uh, they've just destroyed this relationship with God. And the religious things have become just these, these thoughtless rituals that they go through. In fact, in chapter 5, he uses this word, woe, six times. It was like the oracle. It was the pronunciation into woe to these people. It was like, cursed on you. Then we get to chapter 6, and everything changes. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah begins to talk about an experience that he had. At at this point, he's he's not sending a message to Israel. He's saying, let me tell you what I experienced. And it's really quite amazing. Isaiah chapter six, verse one, and he starts off this way. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now that's the kind of phrase most of us just read over and keep going. We just think, "Yeah, you know, I don't know what that's even about. And we just keep going. It's a significant phrase though. And you might say, okay, well, it's kind of like a marker. We do this. We might say, well, I remember that because it's the same year that this happened. This happened at the same time that something very memorable happened. So we kind of Bind them together. I mean, you could say, Well, that happened the year that the Seahawks went to the Super Bowl. Or I remember that because I was in high school, and that was the year that Mount St. Helens blew. Or that was the year that the ten, Twin Towers came down. Whatever it might be, we connect it that way. And while Isaiah does that, he says, I remember this because it was the year the king died. As you dig in, you begin to see that there's a lot more meaning behind this. See, it's in the ages of the kings. And the first one was Saul, and then there was David. That was like the, the, the golden years of Israel. And then there was uh, Solomon. And then the, the kingdom divided. And the northern kingdom, all of the kings were, were horrible. They were, um, they were idolatrous. They were rebellious. And in the southern kingdom, Judah, most of the kings were pretty bad, but there were a few that were good. One of them happened to be uh, Uzziah. And, and there's some interesting things about him. One is that He was 16 years old when he became king. And this is what it says at the beginning of his reign. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And because of that, the Lord blessed him. And because of the blessing on him, it was a blessing on the nation. Here's another interesting thing about him. Is that he reigned for 52 years. So he becomes king when he's 16, and for 52 years, he reigns until he's 68, and then he dies. And it has a bad ending chapter, but for most of his reign, he's a really good king. Now think about this for a minute. He has been their king for 52 years. Well, let's put it in our context, here in America. If you go back 52 years, you're in 1968. In these last 52 years, we've had 10 presidents, LBJ, I don't remember him, it was in my childhood. Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George Bush the Elder, uh, Bill Clinton, W, George Bush the Younger, and then you have uh, Obama and then Trump. We've had 10 presidents over 52 years. In Judah, they've had just one king. And under this one king, they've had economic prosperity. Under this one king, they've had military uh, victory and peace. Under this king, they've had national stability and political stability, and they've even had some spiritual revival. Things have been good for 52 years, and now this constant in their country, in their world, has died. Not only is there the mourning of the loss of a great leader, someone that they loved, but there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of fear. What's going to happen to us? What, who will be the next king? Will they be as good? What will happen now on a military basis? He was a great leader. What will happen to us nationally? What will happen to us economically? What's gonna, there's a lot of fear. So when he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah is saying, man, I remember this. Our whole nation remembers this. We were in a time of mourning and great uncertainty. And it's in that context, he says, and let me tell you what happened that year under those circumstances. He says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Wow, I saw the Lord. This word Lord is, is the word Adonai. It's, it's like the highest title for God. It's, it's like authority and, and, and sovereignty. And this, this sovereign one that he sees is seated, not scrambling, not pacing, pulling out his hair, not frantic, not worried what's gonna happen like the rest of the nation may have been. This one is seated with authority, with confidence, very calm, and he is on a throne. Not just the throne of Judah, which wasn't even the throne of the whole nation. That was just the southern kingdom. This one is sitting on a throne that is eternal. What happened in that moment, while Isaiah and the rest of the country is mourning the 52-year reign of their good king, their leader, he sees the eternal king of the universe and his robe filled the temple. And that's not all he sees. That would have been amazing to see God there. And that's not all he sees. He sees something else. Above him, above this, this, this Lord that was seated on a throne, above him were seraphs. Each with six wings, with two wings, they covered their faces, with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. Now, a little bit of angelology here for you. A seraph or seraphim, Uh, this is the only place we read of them in the Bible. They are a a celestial, angelic being, and um, we don't know how many there, there were, but the word seraph or seraphim actually translated means burning one. Now, this is speculation But for them to have the name Burning One, it could have been that these were fiery creatures, uh, angelic creatures that were were with this brilliance of flame going about the throne. There may have been three of them, four of them, a hundred of them, a thousand, we don't know. But it says they have six wings. With two of them, they cover their face because they're in the very presence of God and no one can look upon God and, and live. And so they cover their face so that they won't see the the glory in its unfiltered form. And with two of them, they cover their feet. And the whole idea of the feet is, is we have feet of clay. Feet is, is what causes the creature to be on the creation of earth. And they're in the presence of the uncreated one. And with two of them, they continue to fly. Now, can you imagine seeing this? Now, whether it was actually in the temple of Solomon, or if it was a vision in the temple of the Lord, we don't know. But he sees the Lord high and lifted up on a throne, seated there. His train fills the temple. There are these angelic beings, these, these seraphim, they're going around and around the, uh, the throne. Now, while that is amazing, it's a, a spectacular sight, what is being said is even more important. And this is where we get to our point. And they, the seraphs, they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. So here are these, these angelic beings, these possibly fiery seraphim that are going around calling to one another. What that looks like, I don't know. I don't think it's the, we love Jesus, yes we do, we love Jesus, how about you kind of calling back and forth. It may have been a call and response. It may have been an echo that right when one stops, another one starts, so that it's this nonstop praise to the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. It may have been, and this again is speculation, it may have been that this this group of, of these seraphim, however many there were, there could have been This pronouncement in some melodic, harmonious chorus that raises up to the Lord. I like to think of it that way, of an angel choir. Because it was in a song where these words were first spoken about God with Moses and Miriam. There's a church in Jerusalem. It's 900 years old. It's the Church of St. Anne. It's uh, in the Muslim quarter of Old Jerusalem it's right by the Pool of Bethesda, uh, Bethesda uh, on the Via Della Rosa. This 900-year-old church acoustically is so perfect. It's known worldwide for its acoustics. And it's said of this church, St. Anne, it's, it's traditionally the, the, the birthplace where the Virgin Mary was supposedly born. But in this church, the acoustics are so amazing that this church, the building is known as an instrument only to be played with the human voice, And every time we go there, we go into the the transept of the the, the crossing of the the big uh, sanctuary there. And there under the dome, we sing a hymn. And I want to tell you, it is absolutely spectacular as it reverberates off of these stone walls and it just continues. And it makes even bad singers sound great. And I tell you, every time we are in there and we are singing, I am moved to tears just by the beauty of it. That is with, with imperfect human voices in an imperfect human building that was made 900 years ago. What if it was the pitch perfect heavenly voices of angels in the very throne of God for all of eternity? If that was the case, how moving that must have been to hear them say these words. And it's what they say, the content, holy, 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 is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. The Lord, this is not not Adonai, this isn't a title, this is the Tetragrammaton, this is the yod He vav These the unspeakable name of God, the Yahweh, the Almighty, the all-powerful, the Lord of hosts, and it's the whole world that's filled with his glory. Isaiah and Judah are in their little country, their little half country, and he says, no, no, I saw the glory of the Lord all over the earth. But it's these words, holy, holy, holy. Those three words have over the years become known as the, the trisagion. The trisagion means three times holy, 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 holy. It's not a typo, it's not filler, it's not stuttering, it's not an editorial slip, an oversight. In the Hebrew language, this was a literary tool. Repetition in the Hebrew language was a way of emphasis. So what you have this is this emphasis to say it again and again. In our language, we have ways of emphasizing. All caps, bold, underline, italics, exclamation points. Emojis, And you know, I mean, you've gotten those emails that's all caps and it, basically someone's screaming at you and you're like, okay, whatever. Because they use it so much. They're always capping everything and underlining everything and bolding everything and exclamation. It's like, come on, it's not all that important. It's an interesting thing is that the Bible never overuses this emphasis. There are times, that it, like when Jesus would preach, very often he would start his statement and he would say, not just, hey, listen, this is true, But he would say, truly, truly. Say it twice. Truly, truly. Old school, some of you have in your Bibles, it would say, verily, verily, I say unto you. And it was an emphasis. The crazy thing is that only two, maybe three times in Scripture do you see anything ever taken to the third degree. So these angelic beings are saying, God is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Nothing else is ever said about God that way. You never read where God is love, 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 mercy, 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 wrath, 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 justice, justice, justice. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. I mean, what what does that even mean? When we talk about God being holy, part of our, I think maybe our, our problem, our limitation, is that we think of it in the term of human goodness, like you know we do the the scale on a scale of one to one hundred. If that's the holiness scale, you <laughs> can always you can always find someone that's lower than you. So this is this is why we operate this way. On a scale of one to one hundred, the holiness scale, you know, we put way down there in the low numbers. You know, axe murderers and and uh, you know drug cartel lords and what have you, people that stock up too much toilet paper, whatever, just way down there on the, on the bottom end. And then upper, not all the way up, but up higher, we, we always use Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, and your grandmother. What makes you think your grandmother is so good? Anyway, and then we put ourselves somewhere in between there, a little closer to the Billy Graham than we do to the ax murderers. And in our minds, we think, well, then God on the scale of one to 100, well, he's at least 100, but probably got extra credit, like he's more than that. And it's all based on our goodness, our, our moral purity and such like that. And while that is a part of holiness, that's not the primary meaning of God being holy in the Bible. In the Bible, the primary meaning has to do with separate. It has to do with being apart, uh, above, distinctive, uh, transcendent, completely other. That's the primary reason. When you read that God is the holy, it's not so much, first of all, talking about his moral purity. We'll get to that. But it's talking that he is altogether different, altogether other, altogether exclusive. That's why it's so interesting. When we use words to describe God, we use words to describe what he's not, Immortal, invisible, um, immutable, unfathomable. That's all. He's immortal in that he's not mortal. We don't know exactly what he is, but we know what he's not. Invisible. We know that you can't see him. He is not visible. I- immutable. We know that he doesn't change. He's not changeable. Unfathomable. We can't fully grasp it. We, we're always talking about what he's not because he is totally and completely other. He is in a category of one. I mean, look at this in in 1 Samuel chapter 2. It says, there is no one holy, no one separate, no one other like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. So when you talk about God being holy, the first thing we need to think about is the fact that he is just completely not like us, not like anyone or anything that has ever been created. He alone is other. But then there is that secondary meaning, and this is where we go to most often. But the secondary meaning has to do with, with purity that God is eternally sinless, which, if you think about it, because he's eternally sinless, that actually puts him in a separate category. He is completely other because no one or nothing else is eternally sinless like he is. That God is the quintessence of moral purity. I mean, he is the infinite perfection of righteousness and purity. I mean, he he never has anything, any sin, any flaws, any uh, bad days at all. And we read this scripture again in Habakkuk. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. That here's our God who is holy, holy, holy. He is separate. He's above. He transcends. He's alone, he's completely other and he is pure and righteous and totally, infinitely sinless. That you have both of these pieces of God. Now, let's go back to Isaiah. So Isaiah is there and he sees these, these, these angelic beings and they're calling to one another holy, 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 separate, other, transcendent, pure, you know, sinless is the Lord Almighty the whole earth is full of his glory. And while all this is going on, he sees God high and lifted up. He sees the seraphim. He hears these, these words. And then the response from the inanimate objects of this temple are amazing. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. While he's there, the whole place is trembling, it's rumbling and there's smoke. It gives you that picture of when God came down onto Mount Sinai. Remember that the mountain was covered with smoke and the whole mountain in the area trembled. That it's the very presence of the holy. He's there and because of his presence and as they're saying this, there's this shaking of the temple and smoke filling it. And you can imagine Isaiah's there. He's got a front row seat. And what's his response? Cool! Cool! (laughs) No, no, just the opposite, the exact opposite. As he's seeing this, as he's hearing this, as he's experiencing this, as he's in the very presence of the holy, he says, woe to me. Now remember I told you in chapter five, he starts off with six woes. These are curses that, that are from God. He's calling curses down on people. He's calling one down on himself. He says, curse to me. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He says, this is a horrible thing for me. This is bringing a curse on me. I'm ruined. Some of your translations may say, I'm doomed. Some of your older translations say, I'm undone. Literally, he's saying, I am disintegrating. I am falling apart. I cannot handle being in the presence of the holy. If anyone in in Israel or Judah would have been able to be in God's presence, it was Isaiah. He's the hand-chosen prophet of God. He's the godly one. And he says, no, 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 no. I am a created being that is sinful, and I am ruined by being in the presence of the holy God. And we don't have time, but as you read or you can read on your own, that one of these angelic beings grabs a coal and comes, and instead of him being cursed, he's cleansed. Instead of him being destroyed, he's purified, and God uses him for his purposes. This God is made, Isaiah would never, ever be the same. In fact, throughout the book of Isaiah, 30 times when he references God, he just says, the holy. I've been there. I've seen him. It was a terrible thing. It was traumatic. It was beautiful. It was horrible. It was, it was awful. It was awful. It was amazing. It was, it was the worst thing ever. And he always refers to him as the holy. Later in Isaiah chapter 40, when he writes, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? says the holy. Isaiah probably could just say, listen, I'm telling you, I've been there and I've seen it. No one, no thing even comes close. He is altogether wholly other. He is separate. He is beyond. He is so far above. He transcends. And the purity, the pure brilliance of his purity, there is no one else like him. That is, is our holy God. The interesting thing about this holy God is that throughout Scripture, it talks about other things that are holy. And these things are holy because they're in the presence of the holy and therefore the purpose of the holy. They're, they're holy things not because they're morally better but because God's holy presence and God's holy purposes make them holy. Go with me on this one. These holy things are, uh, old church word, are consecrated, consecrated. And a way of saying that is they're set apart for God's purposes. They're ordinary things that become extraordinary. They become holy because God has chosen them. Now, I mean, some of you raised in church may have sung the song, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Lord, let my life be set apart for your purposes. Let my life be set apart into your presence. Let my life be holy, not because of me, but because of you. So when God says to Moses, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground, is it that that dirt was more pure than the dirt over there? No, it was the presence of God and God's purpose for that spot that made it holy. When he says in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, is it because that one day of the week is somehow morally more pure than the other? No, it's set apart, holy, consecrated for God's purposes, to focus on him, to worship, to rest, to trust in him. When there's the holy mountain of God, is that this mountain is somehow better than that mountain? No, God chose that mountain, Uh, When the Ark of the Covenant is holy, is it because of the box and and the contents and all? No, it's because God has said, this is where my presence will dwell. This is set apart for my purposes. He consecrates it. He chooses it for his purposes. He takes it out of the ordinary and puts it into the extraordinary, not because of what it is, but because of who he is. Uh, Let me give you a a really bad illustration of this. It's a very selfish illustration. It's a very limited illustration. I promise you, it will severely underwhelm you. So when our girls were younger, as with many of you, every year we would be inundated and accosted by Girl Scouts to buy their cookies. And so every year we would buy Girl Scout cookies. And we bought the Thin Mints and they were fine. And we bought the Tagalongs. Those are really good with the peanut butter in there and the chocolate filling. Those are great. And then we bought the Samoas. Now, the Samoas are the best, in my opinion. Caramel, chocolate, coconut, all that. So we'd buy a bunch of these boxes of cookies, and then I would always buy one extra box of Samoas. And I would put Dad on this box, and they'd be in the freezer. And the rule of the house was this. Of all of the Girl Scout cookies, you may eat freely, But of this box, you shall not touch it. For in the day that you eat of this box, you will surely die. The whole idea is that this box of Samoa cookies were set apart (laughs) for my purposes. to, To be really crass, they were holy unto me, not for anyone else. So when God chooses something, when he consecrates something, he says, listen, this one is holy unto me. This one is set apart to me. It's holy because I have chosen it, and I'm going to use it for my purposes. So the tribe of Levi, the 12 tribes, the Levites, they're the the priestly tribe. Why? Are they better than their cousins? No, probably not. God says, I'm telling you why you're gonna be the holy tribe. I'm telling you why you're gonna be the priestly tribe because I'm choosing you out of these to be my tribe, my, my priestly tribe. It's because of the purpose of the holy one. Israel itself, God's holy people. <laughs> I wonder, was it because they were so much morally advanced than any other nation? Are you kidding me? Have you ever read some of the stuff they did? I mean, why is it that he chose Israel over the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Uptites and the Mosquito Bites and whatever else it might have been? Could he not have just as easily chosen one of those nations? It's because he chose Israel that he says, I am making you holy, not because you're morally better, but because I am choosing you. Look at this in Leviticus chapter 20. You are to be holy to me, set apart to me, consecrated to me. Because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. This is not something that they did. It's not something they earned or deserved. God just says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you holy because I'm holy. Not like I'm holy. You can't be like me. He's completely other. He's completely pure. But because I'm holy, I'm going to set you apart to me. For my purposes. All right, you're saying, well, Bob, why, why, are, you, why are you telling us all this? Let, let me kind of bring this home. Because this is where it all lands with you and me. Is that this verse out of Leviticus chapter 20 that was spoken to the nation of Israel was years later spoken about people who were followers after Jesus Christ. And it was quoted in the New Testament. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, and I would encourage you to read it on your own, it talks about the redemption, what God has done, how we have redemption, and, and the, the living hope in Christ and redeemed by his, his preciously spilled blood and the Holy Spirit's work and the Father's choosing. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 15, it says this, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, and now he's quoting Leviticus 20, be holy because I am holy. Not be holy as I am holy. We could never do that. But be holy, be set apart, be consecrated, be useful for God's purposes because he is holy. And later in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, he says, listen, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may sing the praises of God who brought you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So in the the, the remainder of our time, I just want us to look at what does this look like for us? Because God is holy, holy, holy. He calls us to be his holy people, to be holy, 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 a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation. And what does that look like for us? Well, three aspects, holy, 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 for us. And the first one is this. And it has to do with the whole idea of election and that God chose us. You know, as I mentioned before, it's, 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 it's being chosen. As I mentioned before, things were not holy because they were good. Things were holy because God set them apart. In the New Testament, followers after Jesus are referred to as Saints. Saints. These are not people that have been venerated by the Pope or the Catholic Church. These are run of the mill followers of Jesus Christ who've been redeemed by his blood and are being transformed by his spirit, been chosen by God. They're referred to as saints. And you say, Well, I'm not a saint. Listen, according to the New Testament, if you're a follower after Jesus, you are a saint. I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul refers to the, p- the church in Corinth. They were such a mess, they were a spiritual disaster. And he refers to them as saints. Why? Because they're morally pure? No. Because God has chosen them. In Ephesians, when it talks about how how God has chosen us, what he's done for us, and it says this. For he chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love. That God chose us. He said, you're going to be holy in my sight. Because I've chosen you. In Colossians chapter three, it says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. It's not because we're somehow better. It's because God, our holy God, loves and chooses your chosen people. And he also says in in 1 Peter, you're you're a royal priesthood. This is a struggle because if we're supposed to be doing God's bidding, we know ourselves. We know ourselves. That's why we don't call ourselves saints. We, We know ourselves too well. And that's where you get to the justification. And in justification, we're covered. The justification is basically agreeing with God that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That none are righteous, not even one. None of us are. But the grace of God who has chosen us, set us apart, made us holy by choosing us, the grace of God covers over our sin and over our shame to make us holy in Christ. In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, it says, God made him, talking about Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This, the, the, tech, the theological term is, this is imputed righteousness. It's not our righteousness. Jesus Christ not only paid for my sin, he became my sin. He took on my punishment. And he puts his righteousness on me so that when God sees me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Again, in Colossians, it says this. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. See, God says, I want you to be holy. I've chosen you. That makes you holy. You're set apart to me. I've covered you with the blood of my son. That makes you holy. And you say, well, then, no worries then, Right? So, I don't have to worry about my character or my lifestyle or spiritual maturity or changing. Everything's fine because this is all God's doing. God's doing this. He's done this. But what He is doing is making us holy. I love, love, love this verse out of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, Because by one sacrifice, He has past tense complete, made perfect forever. It's done. He has made perfect forever those who are present tense imperative who are being made holy. Yes, you're holy because God chose you. Yes, you're holy because of the righteous blood of Jesus Christ covers you. And yes, you are being made holy. Ongoing present tense imperative. It's a continual process. And this the the big Fancy church word is sanctification. Sanctification is being changed. It's being transformed. It's surrendering and submitting and walking in step with the Holy Spirit, allowing his power to change us. Why? Because somehow we're going to earn holiness? No! In response to the fact that God has already chosen us to make us holy. That the Son has already spilled his blood to cover us and to make us holy. And the Holy Spirit dwells right within us to transform us and to bring about this change in our lives. Now, look at this verse. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's talking about how you, you, you put off the old self, the, the old self that's destroying you, that's it's corrupting you, and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is where we say, okay, because of God's choice of me, because of what he's done in Christ, now I'm going to continue to work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit as he is transforming my life. As it says in Second Corinthians chapter 3, that we are being transformed with ever-increasing glory. That it's an ongoing process. How about this one? Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. That there is a part where we say, okay, God, I want to die to myself. I want to live a life worthy of the calling that I've received. I want to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. I want to live a life out of reverence to my holy, holy God in response to your choice of me, in response to what you have done in the blood of Christ. I want to be transformed, to be holy. Can I just for a minute put together last week's sermon with this week's sermon that our Heavenly Father chooses us because of his love. The Son of God, Jesus, covers us for his purposes, and the Holy Spirit of God changes us, transforms us, all for his glory. It's the Godhead at work in redeeming our lives. It's because he is holy, because He selected us, that he calls us to walk in step and be holy. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. Spatially, yes, but even beyond the spatial high and lifted up, he is completely other. He is separate, entirely other. He sees him high and lifted up. The whole place is trembling. Smoke has filled the room. Isaiah himself feels like he is coming undone. He is disintegrating because of our great God. At the end of his book, he would write these words in Isaiah 57. For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. God transcends where there is no sin, where beyond creation, And look at this, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Yes, God is completely other, absolutely pure, but he dwells with those, the poor in spirit, who recognize, I'm just ordinary, but God, if you choose me, I'm holy. And Jesus, your blood has made me holy in the righteousness of Christ. And Holy Spirit, I come before you that you can transform me and make me holy. See, our holy God is not only transcendent, he is also imminent. He is right here with us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And he looks at us and he says, holy, holy, holy are my people.